0: Okay, I'm going to speak about uh, life and death today. It's a pretty good day to talk about it. And rebirth as well. But the politics of rebirth, which I think is fascinating. And I hadn't thought about before, but there tends to be some political stuff that goes along with rebirth that we can talk about. So so why is rebirth important? Um, for me, when I first heard about rebirth, it was important because... Uh, I was going to die. And I'm still planning on it. Uh, And it was nice to have some place to go. And so rebirth for me was an interesting concept because it wasn't like Christian rebirth. Now, um, a couple days ago, I was in Glendale, California, and I gave a presentation to the Rotary Club and it was a lot of fun and I was well-received and they gave me lunch. So it was a good day. And, and what I noticed as I looked out is there's, there was like a lot of old people just like me sitting in the audience and, and, and as you get closer to that due date, you know, uh, you start to think about stuff a little differently. Prioritize, giving value to certain projects, taking it away from other projects. And so finding out about rebirth and what I needed to do to get reborn in a good way was important. So it was pretty simple. I didn't have to believe in a divine being. I didn't require grace. I didn't even have to have faith, which was really nice. All I needed to do was be a good person. And, of course, that is a lifelong pursuit. Because I suppose most of us can be good for a short amount of time. And then it's hard to be good after that. Because we have desires and we have interesting ways of looking at the world. And so and we have sankaras, we have habit patterns that keep getting in the way. Something we've always done and continue to do uh, until we break that circle. So, I have a place to go, I know how to get there, but I'm not sure who goes there, because as I continued to read about Buddhism, it didn't seem like I went, which was a little disappointing because, you know, I had sort of packed and got ready for the trip, and then I wasn't going, but everything else was going. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but also how I first came upon the concept and it was in a book written in the 70s by David Kalapano, who was at the University of Hawaii, and it's called A Buddhist Philosophy. And I read it in the 80s, and I found a used copy at Bodhi Tree Bookstore, so I even got a chance to save some money. And the book is like little essays on different aspects of Buddhism, and one of the most important essays for me was the fact that... Uh, our karma is tied directly to our rebirth. Now, Stephen Batchelor has some issues with this idea of karma and rebirth because the feeling I get is he doesn't think Americans are going to buy into the idea of rebirth or reincarnation because most of us were brought up in a Christian community or at least culture and... We have the idea of dying and then going to heaven and staying there forever and ever with friends, relatives and pets that we've lost. <laughs> and which is a very pleasant way of looking at it. But I think the problem for the Buddhist is the fact that we have to factor in impermanence and not self and and there's really may not be a place to go at all that we can even conceptualize. Now, the reason I'm saying all of this is because karma is everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do. And the consequences of our karma, the word is vipaka. So we have cause and consequence. And if everything is impermanent, and if there is a not-self, if it's simply a process, the person that commits the indiscretion doesn't necessarily feel the results of that. It's the next two or three people in line that feel the consequences. So is there ever really justice? Can we ever take that person and stick it to them and say, see, that's justice? And probably not, because it's going to be a different person each time we stick it to them. And so... How can we even think about being good in this lifetime if the consequences aren't going to affect me, the me of this moment? Wow. This is like a lot of stuff to me at the time when I was reading and thinking. And um, so then David Colopano goes into the idea of, well, it's a philosophical issue, this karma thing. And I always love it when they start there, because they can go any place then. So he said, the problem with eternalism, now this is found in Hinduism, not necessarily Buddhism, but there is this sense of soul, this unchanging, independent, unconditional quality that migrates lifetime to lifetime, which has this, and you can identify it. So there's a a definite trail that it leaves behind. And and you go, okay, if that's the case, if it is eternalism, and if there are tens of thousands of rebirths with this one soul, could it be the case that at some point in the migration from lifetime to lifetime, they aren't going to take it seriously? That this soul says to itself, I'm going to have a wonderful life. I'm going to do everything I want to in this lifetime. And for the next five times, I'll just make up for all those indiscretions. So there's a lack of accountability, David Kalapano found, in the idea of eternalism. And that's why we don't use it in Buddhism. Now he also said, there's a problem with nihilism. That if this is all there is, if this particular self, just lives one lifetime, and then ends up feeding the trees, there's also no accountability, because no matter how good or how bad that one self was, the end results are going to be the same, not based on cause and consequence. So it seems that the Buddha came up with a middle path, that he said, it's not the same thing that goes from lifetime to lifetime. But there is something that goes from lifetime to lifetime that we need to be aware of. And so he would call this then the the energy that migrates. Now in Hinduism, they have a word for the energy that migrates and it's called Gandharva. And what seems to happen is God takes from one life and transfers to the new life. So there's a God aspect in it. And this didn't make the Buddha feel comfortable. So he took the God out of the transference. And he said, there is a quality that migrates from lifetime to lifetime, but it's not independent, it's not unconditional, and it is ever-changing. So it's this energy kind of process, which I label, in my mind, to make it understandable to me, I label this the karmic energy. So this is how I look at it, and you can borrow this if you like. I was speaking, as an aside, as a short digression, I was speaking to an old friend that I hadn't seen for a while today. He was actually giving the talk at our center, and I came over here. And we were talking, and she said, every time I come back, she says, you know, these old habit patterns just sort of kick in. And I said, oh, sankaras. And she took a half step back and said, yes. As if to tell me, of course I know what a sankara is. It's a habit pattern. And I felt bad that she responded in that way. And oftentimes people respond to me in that way when I add something to the conversation that they already know. And it wasn't that I was trying to one-up her with my poly or Sanskrit vocabulary. <laughs> the reason I said that was simply to remind myself that I still knew what the word was. It was really all about me. <laughs> and I still remembered, and I felt comfortable with that. Because as I get older, I have this idea that I'm going to start forgetting and forgetting... And forgetting. And I'll be in just a blissful state of ignorance. <laughs> just enjoying the world. So, off of the digression. And, and now we have this, this issue of, of rebirth. We have this issue of karma. We have this issue of consequence. We have this issue of justice. Now I want to talk a little bit about the justice part. In Buddhism we do not have justice. Perhaps because you know there's no one to stick it to after the next moment changes. But more importantly, justice is and, and comes about because of a divine lawgiver who defines for us what is right and what is wrong. And and so we all and the, and that movie's coming out in December, you know, about Moses. Looks like a really good one. <laughs> so he comes with the tablets and says, "This is what God said." And and so, as I was looking at that, I felt a certain freedom of not having to abide by the tablets. That that I could pretty much do anything I wanted because. Uh, we didn't have a divine lawgiver and there was no justice and I would never receive my comeuppance. And then I found out about karma and as being a law and a process. So rather than having justice, we have karma, the cause and consequence of what we think, say, and do. And there's a wonderful Facebook quote that I found that said, let karma finish it. We don't have to we don't have to worry about the ultimate consequence. We can let karma finish it. And in some cases, it won't even be in this lifetime. And that's the deal about multiple lifetimes, is that in order for karma to work, we need to have more than one lifetime. We need to have a past life, a present life, and a future life. And this drives Westerners nuts, because it only seems like now and these past lives and future lives if you've ever heard somebody speak about their past lives you know they're insane (laughs) you know they were the queen of the Nile and they (laughs) so it didn't lead to credibility hearing people speak about their past lives but when I found out about the idea of karma and past lives yes It made sense. Realizing also that a past life can happen consciously and not just physically. That we have who we used to be in this lifetime, we have who we are now in this lifetime, and we have who we will be in this lifetime. We have those three things. Now, I don't know if it's true. I googled it, but Bill Cosby is having some issues. (laughs) Because the guy he used to be doesn't seem to be the guy he is today. And, and I thought to myself, wow, with my life and the guy I used to be and how unskillful I used to be. I'm so glad that I meditate and do all the works that I do to counter all the dumb stuff I have done so I don't have to feel the full impact of the consequences. I can dilute them with my merit and good action, speech, and thoughts. So far, so good, except for how I look. I think this is the direct result of unskillful activity when I was younger. (laughs) And I look in the mirror, and I said, if I could choose, this is not who I would look like. But I don't have the choice. So here we are, working with this karma idea, working with eternalism, and nihilism, working with the absence of justice, understanding that the world is typically unfair and will always be so. And yet somehow we have to make reason and, and of all of this stuff that doesn't make any sense at all. And so we have baggage. We have the baggage of the Buddhist. We have a lot of bags. We have a hundred books. We have many retreats for some of us under our belt. We have thousands of Dharma talks that we've listened to. All those have given us this wonderful baggage to carry with us and make sense of the insanity of our life. Thankfully we don't have to carry that baggage, at least most of it, to the next lifetime. But we will be carrying some of it. We will be carrying the consequences of what we thought, said and done and those will migrate to the next lifetime. And now we come to this idea of who's being reborn. There's a wonderful German monk. I have his, his, his essay here. And the essay is on rebirth and the Gandhava. Okay, so Gandharva is the Hindu God transfers. Gandhava is the energy being transferred one lifetime to the next. Now, it was there for political reasons, according to this monk, and he, and he read the commentaries. So let me sort of point it out and then go into the politics of it, because for me, this was just fascinating. So I'm reading about the Gandaba years ago, and I said, okay, so that's the thing that migrates from lifetime to lifetime, and it is my karmic energy, and I am like in this relay race, okay? And I have this baton, which I'll call the energy baton, And I keep handing it off to the next runner in my life. So I have all these people who are running, and I'm one of them right now in this very moment. I'm holding my baton. And in the next moment, I hand it off, and the next person who resembles me takes the baton and does their their lap, and then they hand it off, and then they hand it off, and then they hand it off. And so, like, who's there, you know? It, it, you know, who will I be tomorrow? You know, and, and I just assume it's going to be similar to who I am today. But to be honest with you, two months ago, two months ago I woke up and I realized I wasn't the same person that went to sleep the night before. That was dramatic. Now, I can't tell you how I was different, and, 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 but I just didn't, I wasn't that same person. And I haven't gone back yet. So maybe that was one of the, the, the legs of my journey. And then I'll have another chance to go to sleep and wake up a different person again. But sometimes the differences are so minute that it's not obvious. But I'm sure that's the case. And that's why people who meditate a lot don't sleep very much because they, they're really working on the one person who's still awake. <laughs> and they don't want to lose him at night, just in case they don't wake up the same <laughs> so it's So we have this idea of, okay, this energy now migrates to the next lifetime, which is the problem we all have. Our suffering starts because we're born. That's the beginning. If we weren't born, we would never suffer. But being born is nice. You know, it gives us something to do until we die again. (laughs) So birth brings what? Birth brings sickness, brings old age if you live long enough, and it brings death. Every time. Every time. So when the Buddha achieved his nirvana underneath the Bodhi tree, it said that one of his realizations was being able to look back and see 100,000 lifetimes that he had lived. Now, I am thinking, wouldn't that be just a trip? (laughs) To look at all those lifetimes. None of them would really be you. They would all be the people you used to be or all the things you used to be. But apparently there's only one you, and it only happens the moment that you're there, and then the very next moment somebody else takes your place. So we have this birth, and birth becomes a big deal also in Paticha Samupada, the 12 link chain of causation. Birth is one of the links. Birth is one of the links that describes why we suffer. Okay, so now we get this birth thing here. So here we are, and it's not the same person from the last lifetime. It's a brand new person this lifetime with tendencies and a few issues and a little predestination of how it might be in the next moment. But the Buddha said, we're not stuck, nothing is predetermined there is no fatalism in Buddhism, that every moment we are awake and make a choice, the future changes. We do not have to be chained to the past. We have total freedom, depending on the choices we make. But a lot of us make the choice to continue the way we were because we have sankaras which are habit patterns and i'm just reminding myself and that, <laughs> and that's why we continue to do the same things over and over again so right now upstairs they're building rooms to talk people out of continuing their sankaras we will have counseling To end the sankaras and create some new ones. Wonderful. Takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. Okay, so then you die and then you're reborn again and then you die and then you're reborn again and you go through this terrible fate of birth and death until finally, finally you achieve nirvana and all future rebirths now have ended. Your karma has ended. Your suffering has ended. You're like in the best place ever. And when that person dies, they go into nirvana forever, which I think is a parallel universe that doesn't require birth or creation to enter. It simply requires nirvana. And because nirvana is unborn and undying, you'll never get old, you'll never get sick, but you probably won't recognize anybody either. And that may not be a bad thing. I don't know if we need to be with the same people for eternity. What are we going to learn? What are we going to talk about? What are we going to do that we haven't done a million times before? I think it would be nice just to have it the first time every time. Just my opinion. So now let's throw some politics in here. The Buddha was very outspoken about certain things. And it's surprising that he didn't meet his end in a tragic way, that nobody took him out. For me, the Buddha is like Martin Luther. He's the reformer. Hinduism had some issues. And one of the main issues that the Buddha kept talking about, which is found in both the theories of of karma and rebirth and the idea of Gandhaba and rebirth, is the fact that the caste system wasn't real. That they said, if you were born into a family of Brahmins, being the priestly caste, you were there because of past karma, and it was your right and your duty to be a Brahmin. But it also worked the same way with the workers, the untouchables. If you were born in that caste, you could never get out. There was no upward mobility. You were stuck lifetime after lifetime because the same person was being reborn or the same soul was being reborn time and time and time again. Now, the Buddha said, but there isn't a person there. there is, there's not an individual, an unconditional element that's reborn time and time again. It's always the first time. It's always somebody different. And I thought to myself, as I was reading this, whoa, this is an amazing statement to make. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, 2,600 years ago in the Hindu or Brahmin system, he stood up and said, no, a, a man or a woman should be given value not because of their birth, but because of what they think, say, and do, their karma. That each and every person has the ability to achieve nirvana. It isn't just the priestly caste. And each gender has the ability to achieve nirvana, which was something radical as well. So for me, being born in Iowa, I just wanted to have some place to go. And I thought, yeah, this is so cool because I do have some place to go and there's 30 heavens and there's 30 hells and there's karma so I don't need justice and there is this consciousness or karmic energy that's being reborn time and time again so I don't need to worry about that. I don't need a divine being to forgive me or to have grace. I simply need to be skillful in whatever I think, say or do moment by moment every time I manifest. Okay, so there you go. And, and, and this allowed me, as a religious Buddhist, to embrace this concept. But if you're not a religious Buddhist, if you're a secular Buddhist, or a philosophical Buddhist, or a lifestyle Buddhist, or a therapeutic Buddhist, you might have some issues with this afterlife thing. And I keep running into all these brick walls with people who have decided they're not going to believe in any kind of afterlife. And I think it's fine. But the problem with that is you have to die. And I think it's much easier to die if you think you're going someplace, even if you're not. But you don't know. (laughs) It's just a story. Everything we hear, see, read, feel, they're just stories. There's no no truth involved at all. We're making it up. People always ask me, do you believe in what you say? And I say, I believe it to be Buddhist. That's all I'm required to do. I don't have to read everything in Buddhism and say, yes, it's true or not true. My job is to say, is this what the Buddha said, or is this similar to what the Buddha said? Could this be viewed as what the Buddha said? Because if you're on Facebook, the Buddha said a lot of stuff. <laughs> so I don't know if it's true. I don't know if any of it's true. And, and, and the only truth that we can get out of this is the relative truth, Of intellectual understanding. That's the relative truth. Intellectual understanding. We can understand this to be true because it fits the model of intellectual understanding and it's dualistic. And because it's dualistic, we understand because there's more than one. But that's not the only truth the Buddha spoke about. The Buddha spoke about the ultimate truth which has no words, can only be directly experienced. And in trying to interpret that direct experience to others, you keep falling back on relative truth, which ends up to simply be the finger pointing and never ever what it's pointing at. So when I read this and print it out, and when I understand the reference points and when I understand the political aspects and when I understand all of this, it's simply I just understand it in my way. We all have our own way of understanding everything. Some of, sometimes it's similar enough. We understand stuff similar enough that we form groups like Democrats, Republicans, you know, or Buddhists and Christians. And we have all these groups because we have a similar understanding of the truth, until that direct experience challenges us and we may have a paradigm clash and come to a new conclusion and forever be something else. Which is, I guess, called personal growth and evolution. So, we don't want to get stuck. We don't want to be dogmatic. We want to see the truth as it is today at a relative level. We'd like to experience the truth as it is today at an ultimate level. Perhaps through meditation, and then we all get a cup of coffee, and continue our day. We got a lot of stuff to do. We just can't be thinking about this stuff all the time, you know. <laughs> Unless you're in the business, I'm a professional. So, <laughs> so I, I'm going to uh, stop there and see if anybody has comments or questions they'd like to share. Yes, in the back. In just this very lifetime, or in just this very day. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the question I have for you is, who are you? <laughs> right now, I mean. There you go. Right now I meet. Mean. Exactly. Okay, I like that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that, that we've come to the point now, because of our technology, that we can measure this stuff, that the Buddha experienced... You see, because this isn't like a theory he came up with or a book that he read. This is from his direct experience of what it meant to be a human being, and now we can say yes, so what does that do? How does that change your life when you realize you're you know twenty thousand different people in a day or a month or you know I mean, how do you find How do you find a causal connection between each one of those? persons and that's I think the power of ego or self or personality is it it it's a causal connection it's the way we have a similar identity within those 20,000 changes impermanence, and and so we label it Joe, Mary, Sam, Sally you know Because it's far too complicated to speak to somebody and watch a manifest 20,000 times. You know, I mean, how do you keep a conversation going, you know, with all these different people? (laughs) Which, you know, you hear people that go insane or you hear people that take, you know, uh, LSD or, you know, and, and, and and, and sometimes they're faced, it seems to me, with that problem. I'm having to speak to 20,000 different people so they just don't say anything cuz they see it clearly. Thankfully we don't and that's why we have good mental health. You know. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yes. Mhm. And it's just like you know, you know, it's like there's connections like that
1: people where people were it's like is is that like another life or is that just like it's just coincidence or it's, or it's just biological or? You know, the whole past
0: life. Yeah, and I don't know if it's really important. <coughs> you know, it's just <laughs> thinking, thinking, as they say, <laughs> it's an intellectual understanding. You know, and, and you say, well, we're always different. But, you know, you can't really work at that level in our community. And, and so siblings, families, friends do have a lot in common. Uh, uh, Carl Jung came up with something called synchronicity, where this thing sort of happened together, in seemingly random, but maybe not. And so for, it's, it's fascinating to, to reflect on that. But, you know, sometimes you can get lost in that stuff and, and forget to live. You know, forget to engage in what's going on right now. And, and I found with my own practice and my own life that, that the more I found out about not-self, the more engaged I became with life, which is paradoxical to say the least. But it was something that I had kept my foot one. I, I was always a half step away From what I was doing so I could analyze it and critique it to see if I was doing it correctly or in a skillful way and finally when I understood there was nobody there to analyze or critique then I was able to fully engage in what I was doing which was a very pleasant experience and the idea of being self-conscious then sort of falls away Um, I don't know if I could repeat that.
2: I mean, uh,
0: not repeat it, but um, I'm almost understanding what you're saying. Okay. Um, it, it'll it'll be on a podcast in, in, a, in a couple days. So, but it it is the the paradox of of being a self and standing apart and watching things happen and then self judging which is a a no-win situation always, or understanding it's simply a process, and the idea, and Zen says it very well, when you chop wood, when you carry water, just chop wood, just (laughs) carry water. That you have no conscious past or future, you have no anticipation about doing it well or poorly, you're simply doing it in the present moment. I think Nike says something about that as well. <laughs> so, the, so the idea is to engage. And, and all this stuff seems to allow us to engage in a very authentic way. Right. Okay. I think I got it. And then somebody asked me at one point there um how how revenge fit and everything is <laughs> and what's the difference between revenge and justice and harm? I don't like revenge. I think anything just revenge is just messed up. Okay. I think it could work like this. Um we cannot tell people how to define us though we would like to. I told my mother on many occasions who I was. <laughs> she didn't buy it any of those times, you know. So we have to sort of let them do with us as they will. When they say, oh, he's you know clever, or he's stupid, or he's tall, or he dresses poorly, or why did he buy those shoes? They just need to work that stuff out. We don't have to be part of that. We can just be amazed at what they see. Because in a lot of cases, as they, they, they say, what they're seeing is themselves. In us. And we're just a mere reflecting. Perhaps, I don't know. It's on page 34. So, so then this idea about doing stuff. Okay, so you've been wronged. And do you simply take it like a Buddhist? And let karma finish it. And and I would say absolutely not. That we are called to engage. For 20 years I've been doing community service work. 20 years. Not because I wanted to. Not because I thought it was a good idea. Not because I thought I would be making a difference. None of those things came into play. The only thing that came into play as a Buddhist, as I did my community service was, is there anybody suffering? And I engage because of the suffering. Not because it's right, not because it's revenge, not because it's justice. But simply because humans and others are suffering, and perhaps I can relieve some suffering. Now, did I have any tools in this community service when I started? Absolutely not. I didn't go in to make a difference. I went in to learn something. And after years of being engaged in community service, you start to learn stuff. And then you can bring something to the table when you're asked to get involved. But if they weren't suffering, would I be there? I wouldn't. It's too hard. It never ends. There's always somebody else in line who's suffering. Forever and ever and ever. And there's no sense of satisfaction. Because if you ever make a difference in somebody's life, generally speaking, you're not going to find out. Or, in my case, somebody 15 years ago heard a talk I gave and came up to compliment me and I didn't have a clue on what I talked about or the situation I spoke of. And, And so, it's been erased from my memory for some reason, but they were kind enough to say thank you. So I couldn't even... Get a little high out of that, you know, because it wasn 't me that did it, not the me standing there that day, so you you just keep going on and 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 you do what you do theoretically to be skillful to reduce suffering in the world, no right or wrong yeah that 's how I look at it, yeah, yeah.
2: one life Okay. Um, and I think it's helpful to a point but I also think that it's worth noting that there's a there's a qualitative difference between those different types of rebirth because rebirth from moment to moment within one life comes with a continuity of consciousness and a continuity of knowledge mm-hmm. uh, obviously if I'm someone different today than I was yesterday I still have a body of knowledge that I had yesterday mm-hmm. I have today and that continues with me and it helps me function in the world helps me function in my job and in my relationships and everything. absolutely so talking about rebirth from moment to moment within one life as a way to understand rebirth more broadly um, I feel like I run up against run up against that difference is something that's hard to get past okay how does rebirth from the concept of rebirth across lives what is that? And what, how is that different from the rebirth from moment to moment within a life that, that has qualities that, that carry over, that, that then wouldn't carry over between
0: lives? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And isn't it nice we don't have to relearn everything all the time? <laughs> <laughs> we do carry that body of knowledge with us. Okay, so, so in consciousness, yeah, and it, and it makes us in the West who are sort of into psychology and psychiatry and conscious states more comfortable realizing that there's a model that we can relate to. But then y- you put the consciousness in, and, and they say, in some cases, that consciousness actually migrates from lifetime to lifetime. And, and there's a um, receptacle in our consciousness called the storehouse consciousness, or the vibhanga consciousness. And these are seeds from all our past lifetimes that have migrated with the karmic energy. And that's what the Buddha tapped into, he tapped into that storehouse consciousness and could see all the past lives, so didn't have to relearn anything after that experience of nirvana. I, I, I had to make it understandable to me, so I had to oversimplify it. That's how I work. And so for me, I think it works like this, is that we have all this information, but it's coded, and we don't have the key. And nirvana gives us the key and then we can decode those seeds in our storehouse consciousness and see where we came from and what tendencies we have in the direction we're going to go in the future. Of course, if we achieve nirvana, we know what the future holds for us, which is nirvana. That's it. Pretty simple. <laughs> so, you're right. It, it's, it's a tough one. And, and do you need to have it? Well, if you're a Buddhist, you really sort of need to work on why it might make sense because of the karma connection, but also because of um, the the fact that we were born and we have to die, and we may have done that many many times before, which gives us a certain amount of peace. Ironically, that this is not the first time, even though every moment's the first time, and, and we keep going through all this stuff. And then, I, what did I just see? I saw a movie called. Uh, Live, Die, Repeat, Tom Cruise. And 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 he repeats the same day. So, sort of like Groundhog Day, except they kill each other. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it was fascinating. Now, it got a little murky at times in the story, the storyline, because it was hard to put all that science in there and make it make sense. But it's science fiction, so it can make sense, if you emphasize the fiction part. And... And, it, and then finally he succeeded. After redoing that day enough times, he was able to go through all the stuff and, and succeed and kill the bad guy and continue to live. So, and actually, he found romance and probably got married too. <laughs> so you, so you look at this stuff and you go, yeah, well, you know, Groundhog Day, we're sort of doing the same stuff every day in a way. We're carrying all that stuff with us each time, our baggage. And, and then, what travels with us? And again, you say process, energy, karmic energy, but we don't even need to name it karmic energy, we just need to name it energy. So, if that's the case, I went back to, well, can energy be, you know, uh, destroyed or created? And they say it can't. They say energy can only be transformed. So then I said to myself, well, maybe I'm just an energy transformer, this person. And I take all this energy that doesn't have a moral value, and I think, and I speak, and I act, and I give this neutral energy a value, either skillful or unskillful, good or bad. And then that follows me until the consequence manifests, and then it's on to the next thing. And so I was able to to give it life looking at it that way. In my mind, in my intellect, if you give me credit for that, I, I, I you know, I meet so many people who are so much smarter than I am, it's really disappointing. You know? <laughs> so 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 I have to make it sort of mine. And there's a, a term called auto Didac. Have you heard of it? autodidact? Someone who, who listens to all the stuff, reads all the stuff, but basically does it his way, through his own personal understanding, reading, knowledge. He, he's self-taught, if you will. So it seems to me what we're given is a body of work. And, and a lot of the stuff is paradoxical. A lot of the stuff doesn't fit in any place in what we've learned or come to understand to be true. And, and so my job for the past couple decades is, is, is to say, okay, let's see if I can work it out personally. Then what I'll do to validate my personal awareness is I'll listen to other people talk or I'll read books. And something they say or something I've read triggers what I've come to understand to be true. It's validated. I say, okay, on to the next thing. And so there's a whole lot of self-validation that goes into my understanding of what Buddhism is. Because I would ask people what Buddhism is, and they would tell me, and I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. Because everybody has like their own unique, special way of looking at it. Not only are there three main schools and thousands of branches of those schools, but you have each person proclaiming their knowledge or insight into the true meaning of this stuff. And I always took that with a grain of salt. It was true to them, and they couldn't make it true to me until I did something or read something or understood something in a certain way that became my truth. So it was uh, frustrating, to say the least. Now, as pointed out in the Vasudhi Magga, the path of purification, there's a little two or three paragraph phrase that meant so much to me. Not that I understood it, but it meant so much to me. It's The idea on Buddhism is to disentangle the tangle. So we have this thread, and it's all tangled up. And if you've ever had a bunch of earphones sitting next to each other, somehow those wires just attract each other and get all tangled up. So the idea, it seems to me, is we disentangle the tangle. We have all these different viewpoints and ways of looking at it, and and they're all validated as being right and true. And once we see the thread, and the word thread is sutta, or suture in English, once you see the thread and see how all that seemingly unrelated stuff is connected, then the idea of truth or not truth, understanding or not understanding, sort of falls away. Because you can apply that thread to each thing you've read or heard and see if it connects to the rest of the dharma. And if it does, then it gives you a starting point, if you're not already there, a starting point to say, well, this must be important because it keeps getting validated. So why can't I see it? What's holding me back? What do I need to do to awaken to that piece of information, if you will? And, 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 and that's been most of my practice, is, is meditating and reading and listening. You should see the collection of cassette tapes I have from the 80s. I'm going to have to just give them away or throw them away one time. Putting all this stuff in here because I could not understand it and it drove me crazy. And then finally one day, I started to understand it, not because intellectually I could understand how deep and profound it was, but because I started to see the thread that linked everything together. I hope that made sense. Does that, is that helpful at all? Okay, so, yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah, Hi.
1: losing out if I choose to not even consider it. I mean your your practice is basically you're thinking
0: about that and other issues related to that all the time. So is do you have a response to emergency? Yeah, I, I do. And uh, a friend of mine <clears throat> uh went to India and she was able to hear a Tibetan monk speak uh at length about finding happiness in Buddhism. And she said it really confused her because I had never talked about finding happiness in Buddhism. I'd always talked about suffering. And, and I said, I think it works like this to her. I said, you know, if I'm speaking to young people under 30, it's how to be happy. If I'm speaking to old people over 30, it's how not to suffer. <laughs> so, so it's like, you, you talk to the young people about how to live, and you talk to the old people about how to die, and, and it seems to work really well going in that way, but there are some old people who don't want to die, want to be happy, and they live at Leisure World, <laughs> which is a fun place to go. I, I, as I say, I go there every month. You know, I, I love the three-wheeled bicycles. They get the flag. They have 400 clubs that keeps everybody engaged in community and, and, and it's just, it really feels good. So in keeping death as your co-pilot, resting on your shoulder, what you start to see is life in a very different way. And you start to appreciate it. Unlike when I was 20, at 65 I look at life and I'm going, wow, I'm still here. I can still remember Sankara's and I'm doing okay. And, and so, not that I won't die, but how can I die well, and what do I need to do while I can still do it? You know. And so, when I see people starting to age, and, and I, all I see is simply more boundaries and more chances to be creative. So instead of picking up the fork with one hand, now you pick it up with two hands. It's a workaround, you know, and instead of, you know, buying these kind of shoes, now you buy these kind of shoes. It, there's a possibility that, that our life can even be more magical as we get older rather than less magical, that we can be more creative and more artistic in our old age, not because we want to, but because we have to, and, and that we can check out with a smile. Having lived well and looking forward to the next one. <laughs> if you can find a bunch of people who will encourage you with that mindset. So, yeah, so I, I think there is a separation. I think certain things mean different things depending on how old you are. And I don't think we should deny the aging process. I call myself old every chance I get. And people get so uncomfortable. You're not old. You know, and I just want to say, well, what is old, you know? And it's different for everybody. But I'm getting Social Security and Medicare. I'm old now. (laughs) So, and I'm okay with saying that, you know? And when I go to high schools, they say that too about me. No, it's the old guy, you know? So, it's just a wonderful journey, and I think... Christian Murthy was right in telling the young man, "You're too young to think about death. Think about life, and then there'll be a moment when death makes perfect sense." Thanks, thank you. And our time is is has ended. Thank you, everybody, for uh, showing up today. And even the workers are taking a break now. <laughs> How wonderful is that? So, a quick loving-kindness meditation. And we're going to go home. <phone rings> May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet And overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief. (laughs)